Welcome to The Cap, where we are here to speak with college reps and other professionals in the field of college admissions to help answer all your questions and guide you through every step of the process. So if you're serious about college admissions, you've come to the right place. Are you ready? Let's talk about it. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Durante. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and I am here to introduce you to college admissions representatives and other professionals in the field of college admissions. Our purpose is to serve you, the students and parents, so that you may gain insight straight from the people who ultimately make the decisions. Regardless of whether you apply to a particular school being highlighted in a given episode, you should listen to all of them, as each guest will give you tremendous insight and advice on every aspect of the college admissions process, prompting you to come up with your own follow-up questions for when you visit campus or meet with a college admissions representative yourself. Don't forget to visit our website, www.collegeadmissionstalk.com, or the show notes of each episode to access the alphabetical list of all the colleges available with the related audio link to the right of each school. The alphabetical list provides you with on-demand access to all of the episodes so that you may listen whenever you wish. And if you want to receive links to episodes before they are released on the podcast, along with other related resources, please fill out the email opt-in form also available on our website and in the show notes of each episode. Lastly, please email me with any questions or comments at collegeadmissionstalk at gmail.com. So are you ready? Let's talk about it. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today Todd Reinhardt, who's the Vice Chancellor for Enrollment at the University of Denver. Todd, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? John, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me and for including University of Denver in this very uh, popular podcast. Well, I appreciate that. It is a true honor and a pleasure. So, Todd, let's start by me asking you, what are some of the things that you personally love about the University of Denver that make it so appealing for so many students to want to apply and ultimately attend? Sure. Well, first, John, let's talk. Location, location, location. <laughs> you get to live in the great state of Colorado on the great state of, or the great city of Denver. Uh, we're about five miles south of downtown. So we're not downtown. We definitely are, are an urban campus, but our kind of surrounding area is really more of a residential neighborhood. So our, our students, and then I'll answer your question, but our students, the first two years you actually live on campus, but our third and fourth year students who tend to live off campus are literally only a couple blocks away because they live in the neighborhood uh, kind of near our campus. So what are some other unique things? One, we're a medium-sized private school, and there aren't many of those. So, you know, we've got a lot of the things you're going to see at the smaller liberal arts colleges where smaller classes, personal attention, great faculty teaching those classes and, and really engaging our students. But yet we also have a lot of the characteristics you're going to find at you know, a large public flagship. We have Division One athletics. We have, uh, we're an R1 research uh, institution. We also have probably all the academics and schools and colleges and majors that you're going to find at those larger schools. So, so yes, we have great liberal arts. We have phenomenal, you know, political science and creative writing, but we also have an outstanding business school and an outstanding engineering and computer science school. So it's kind of a perfect combination, I'd say, academically and Size-wise, we're probably 
small enough that you still know a lot of people, uh, big enough that you're always meeting new people. You have also some independence and, you know, some of your life is still private, if you will. <laughs> and I, you know, I think the other things that are attractive, one, if you want to study abroad, DU should be on your list. We're always one of the top schools as far as the percentage of our students who go abroad. Another thing that is really unique to us, we actually have two campuses. Um, one main campus for, you know, your majors, minors, all your classes, but we also have a mountain campus. It's about two and a half hours north. And we really dig in and use it. It's not just, hey, go up there for a weekend and goof off. That This is where we're going to, you know, do uh, maybe boot camps on ethics or writing workshops, leadership workshops, but also get our students out into the great outdoors, doing ropes courses, uh, rock climbing, hiking, camping. It's a 700-acre campus, wow. uh, about two and a half hours north of our, of our urban campus, which our urban campus is probably about 130 acres. Um, so, you know, it's seven times bigger than, than our main <laughs> campus. And our main campus feels pretty big. But so there, there's, a, I think, a lot of great reasons to have Denver on your list. Well, that's a terrific introduction. You mentioned the location, the fact that it's a mid-sized school, which many students are looking for. Great academic programs, tremendous study abroad opportunities. And I didn't know about the mountain campus, but thank you so much for sharing that, Todd. So I was also curious, Todd, because visiting campus before committing to a school is so important for the student to really get a feeling of the school and the surrounding area. So when a student comes to campus, what are the areas that they absolutely should visit? And what are some questions they should be asking to help them determine whether or not the University of Denver is in fact the right fit for them? Great question. I think a few things, and I think it maybe is different. This advice might differ depending on where you are in, in school. So let's say if you're 10th or 11th grade, and you're not visiting schools. In some ways, you're just trying to get general ideas, general senses of, hey, do I want something out of state? Do I want something more in a college town or more, more access to a large city? You know, like Denver has, um, do I, you know, want big or small enrollment? Just what are the types of things you're kind of, you're trying to get the big picture feel. So definitely, you know, you want to do the information session and the tour that all of the universities and colleges offer. Most of us do it twice a day. That So you're going to get to see a lot of the different academic buildings and the library and the either the student union, the community commons, whatever the, the schools call it. You know, you want to start to get a feel for those things. I also think if you have time, but maybe this is more for when you're admitted, because I do think you have a different lens when you're a senior and you've already been admitted. Now, instead of shopping at these 10 or 15 schools and you're just trying to get a bigger picture sense of where you maybe would fit in, now you're really kind of looking into the weeds. Right. And I would say, you know, if you're thinking about spending four years at a place, you probably shouldn't come in and just do the two-hour admission program. Like, come in the day before, stay the day after, Spend the night somewhere near. Go out. Go out to some of the local restaurants, or go to a museum. You know, if you're if you're out here, clearly I'd recommend you go downtown Denver. Many great restaurants. We've got our Performing Arts Center. If you want to see a musical or a play, we have every professional sport. If you want to see Nuggets or Broncos or <laughs> the Colorado Rockies, I also recommend for all of our out-of-state families, you've got to go to Red Rocks, and that's an amphitheater. <laughs> it's probably about thirty minutes away from our campus. Parents will especially appreciate this. Any any musical act, rock band, you name the genre, they've played Red Rocks. So, you know, I don't care, Beatles, Elvis, 
you know, Dave wow. Matthews, U2, you name it. From back in our day, they've all been there. But all the modern groups, you know, come through every summer too. It's and it's a, also a great place to work out when you're when you're there during the day. Um, Coloradans like to really stay healthy and be fit. There's always people running up and down the steps and doing workouts, kind of in the amphitheater. But it is amazing. The stage and all of the seats are literally carved out of red rocks. Wow! Uh, just kind of this mountain feature. And it's one, just one of the coolest things you've ever seen in your life. And it's, it's just super close to our campus. Of course, I always recommend to go, uh, you know, keep on driving, go to Keystone or Breckenridge or Vail and maybe get some snowboarding or skiing in. Well, that sounds terrific. And it's great advice if it's possible, rather than just coming to campus for the two-hour tour. If you could manage families to stay for a couple of days, there's so much to do on the campus and in the surrounding area. So, Todd, thank you so much for that overview. We really appreciate it. And so can you walk us through the overall application process, of course, at the University of Denver? In other words, Todd, what happens once a student hits submit? Are the applications reviewed by high school, by region, intended major? Basically, any insight that you could give, Todd, we'd really appreciate it. Right, you bet. So first of all, we have a team of, oh my gosh, probably 15 full-time staff. And then we have another team of like 20 seasonal readers. And a lot of those seasonal readers are former admission counselors who've been on our team and they're now retired. And, you know, they need, they still want to work and be engaged. They just don't want to be the road warriors and go visit 150 <laughs> high schools every fall anymore. So, the, you know, the, even our seasonal readers are very experienced readers. And kind of each reader while we have a rubric and certainly certain things they're looking at on, on the transcript and how they're evaluating the application, we kind of leave it up to them as far as they're all assigned different states and school districts. Some, some prefer, hey, I'm going to read all of my applications from, from New York and kind of do all those together, or I'm going to do it by school. So if I have 30 applications from the same high school, I'll focus on that school, read all 30 but we don't really have a rule around that. It's kind of up to the reader if they want to do it by their state or if they want to do it by high school. Or some of them, literally, as a file comes in and gets added to their queue, they're literally just reading an order as they come into their queue. And, you know, it could be different high schools, different states, because they all have multiple territories. And there's really not a rhyme or reason. I think it's just what a personal preference. It doesn't really play into, you know, how our decisions finish. I think it's more just a preference for each individual reader. Well, we appreciate that insight. Thank you so much because so many students and their parents, they really want to know what happens once they hit submit. So again, yeah. thank you so much for the overview. That's terrific. And of course, Todd, the overall number of applications schools are receiving are on the rise thanks to so many things such as schools going test optional, for example, which we'll talk more about later. So with an increase in applications, how do you determine how many students to accept, waitlist, or deny when you don't have necessarily the number of applicants that will actually attend if, in fact, they're accepted? To make matters worse, those percentages, your yield, change from year to year. So do you lower your acceptance initially and increase the number of students that get placed on the waitlist? How does it work, Todd? Again, yeah. any insight would be greatly appreciated. And John, you realize we, we are uh, still trying to figure these, these questions out. Like if I really knew the answer to these questions, I would be a multimillionaire right now. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, you're trying to peel that onion back and, and kind of give families an inside, you know, look behind that curtain, if you will. But 
it's it's a really tough job, right? Our job is an art and a science. And the good news is we receive over 20,000 applications every year for a class of about 1,600 in the fall. Um, the bad news is we receive 20,000 applications. <laughs> and, you know, to your point, students have a lot of choices. We, in some ways, a private selective school like Denver, the applicants themselves almost self-select. In other words, most of the students who apply to us are really strong students and they've taken a good curriculum, they go to good schools and uh, they make our, our decisions really difficult. Right. right. So we don't get too many students, for example, who apply and, you know, they don't have a 3.0 GPA, for example. That, you know, I think everyone in our top quarter or even more have a 4.0 or higher. Right. So right. Um, trying to figure out when they've applied to maybe 10 different schools, what level of interest and how many do we have to, to offer to make sure we can meet our enrollment target and the revenue targets that we have. But yet at the same time, the size of school we are. I can't miss on the other side either because we still have limited number of beds, limited number of seats. You know, I talked to you earlier about how we have small classes. Uh, right. The deans expect me to honor that, right? <laughs> that we're not going to suddenly put you know thirty or forty students in a room when they're expecting twenty. Right, right. So Understood. yeah, it's it is an art and science. We we use a lot of data. Um, you know, students along the way help us, right? Someone who's visited campus. Someone who's taking the time, they're, they're reading the messages, you know, the emails that, that we're sending them. And um, they're maybe engaging with their, their respective admission counselor for who covers their high school. You know, telling us that, look, we're not just one of your school, you know, one of the schools we're applying to that we're maybe actually one of the top two or three schools that we have a genuine interest. We've done our research. We know that, you know, personally and academically and financially that this is a really strong place for us. And it's not just... Hey, I'm applying. I'm just going to kind of see if, you know, what happens. Um, we're trying to find in our reading process more and more of those students. Because, because if I don't, if I don't use some of those factors, I'm either way under-enroll or way over-enroll. And if we do that, you're going to be interviewing someone else for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I understand, and thank you so much, and I agree. Your work is definitely not only an art, but also a science, and you touched upon it a little bit, and I'm curious, Todd, what are some of the things that students do to demonstrate their interest in attending the University yeah. of Denver, and do you track such things as part of your overall process? Right. We do track a number of things, but we don't try to quantify it. So, you know, we're not looking necessarily, oh, well, this student has this, like, score, versus someone else's score. And we do, we do score students for other reasons, but that's more to help us kind of manage some of our communications and marketing. But, <laughs> it, you know, when we're doing admission, it really is a holistic review that um, we don't compare students on any number of factors. When we're looking at a student, we are looking at that student. We're looking at their transcript, the classes they've taken, um, the trends in their grades, right, and their essay and their racks and their activities. And then we're also looking at those other factors. Hey, have they visited campus? When we visited their high school, did they come to that session? When we were in their area for a college fair, did they come to our fair? Have they ever emailed us with a question? Have they raised their hand in any number of ways? And, and by the way, we don't expect students, we don't want to turn this into a game. We don't want students just intentionally like right. clicking on links and emails or visiting our website just to you know try to, to fake it, if you will. Right. But, you right. know, make this be genuine. Like, if you're going to take the time, do it because you genuinely do want to learn more about 
our university. You want to get on our website and go learn more about the biology program or the engineering school that you're not just doing it as a strategy to be admitted, right? You're doing it because you truly do want to learn one. You're, you're trying to figure out if we are a match for you. And that interest, by the way, also helps us determine if you're a match for us. Well, that's great advice. And I think that students really need to hear that again. Don't just demonstrate interest because you're trying to play a game. But if, in fact, you're interested, for example, in the University of Denver, like Todd said, go to a session, introduce yourself, scan the QR code, fill out the form if there's a form to fill out, and email them with a question so that they know that you're actually interested. Now, again, don't email them a question that is so easily accessible on their website. Come up with something that's not so right. easy. Again, students, if you're interested in a school like the University of Denver. So I really appreciate that, Todd. And I was also curious about legacy. In other words, Todd, does legacy play a role in your overall admissions process? In other words, if a student's parent attended the University of Denver, do you consider that in the overall process? Sure. So by the way, we have any alums or uh you know, parents, siblings, because we look at legacies as siblings and parents too. Um, but we right. don't really, do, I don't want them yelling at me saying, hey, they don't really get any <laughs> big advantage in, in the admission process because they don't. We don't have any formal process. You don't get like additional scores or points, you know, because your older brother went here or your dad went here, you know, 20 years ago. Um, however, we do individual application review. So, Let's say if you're just an audit, you know, you're a really strong student, right? Great grades, great, really strong curriculum. So it really doesn't matter, right? If your parent went or your sister, right. you're probably going to right. be admitted. You're, you're, you're getting in on your own record, right? Now, if someone has a really poor record, I don't care if five of your family members are in here, you're probably not going to get in. Not probably, you know, I'm trying to be nice. You're definitely not getting in. And you know, we can talk to you about, hey, maybe going somewhere and transferring, you know, get your grades and get kind of things in order again, and then talk to us in another year or two. I'd say where it sometimes becomes a factor, just like demonstrated interest. If you're borderline academically, and, and borderline is relative to wherever you're applying, right? Like, you know, borderline at Harvard is going to be different than borderline at Denver. But let's <laughs> say if you're borderline and you did a, maybe one of your siblings went here, one of your parents, does not mean you're going to be admitted. What it means is that we probably will give your file just a second look. Like, are there, are there some other right. nuggets of success that we should be looking at? Did they do, maybe their overall GPA is not as strong as we, you know, as competitive with our pool, but maybe in 11th grade, they really were working hard. The light bulb went off. Their grades got a lot better. And we're more admitting you because of that trend you're starting to show that you've maybe put two or three semesters in a row together now. Um, and we maybe gave you that look because, because of a connection, if that makes sense. But I would say 99% of our decisions, it's not a factor at all. Well, that totally makes sense. And I, again, appreciate the comprehensive answer. Thank you so much, Todd. And of course, I know that the University of Denver, like many other schools, is in fact test optional. Mm -hmm. Todd, can you share the percentage of students that apply and that are ultimately admitted that did not submit their test scores? And I ask this question mm -hmm. because a lot of students and their parents think that the test optional nature of the college admissions process is a myth. So that's why I'd be curious to know what that percentage is. Yeah, and I'll, I'll answer that. I also just want to maybe back up and just talk about test sure. optional a little bit. One, we went test optional before the pandemic. Uh, you know, right. Most universities had to do it because there were no tests 
available. Students weren't able to test. So therefore, pretty much our entire country went test optional. And by the way, it was the right thing to do. You know, and 99% of them have remained test optional because that's still the right thing to do. And I think right. they've kind of realized what we did before the pandemic, that as a value and as a philosophy, we really wanted to de-emphasize test scores. And we realized that it didn't tell us a whole lot, right? That a test score alone was not correlated very much with your first year GPA. It was hardly correlated at all with whether you'd retain into your second year. And really when we did all of our data, most of it was dictated on what classes did you take and what grades did you earn? That was far more predictive of how a student's going to do on our, on our campus. I think when we took high school grades and uh, test scores together, and then we removed the test scores, I think I lost two percentage points of the correlation with first year GPA on our, on our campus. Wow. Meaning that's a pretty small risk, yeah, right? That when we're absolutely. doing admission decisions, if I'm only losing 2% of the explanation on how you're going to do on our campus, I think we're okay giving up that 2%, you know, that extra 2% lift, I guess. And then back to your main question. When we were test optional before the pandemic, about a quarter of our pool would apply test optional, about 75% would submit test scores. Pandemic hits, that about flips. Not quite all the way. We've been pretty consistent. About 60% of our students apply without test scores and about 40% submit scores. So our overall admit rate, it's basically the same for both groups, right? And, and truthfully, in the, back in the day when we had the test scores, they played such a small role in our decision to admit or deny someone. When they were admitted, where it did used to play a larger role was on our merit scholarships. So once we had already decided to admit, we were trying to figure out how to distribute our, our merit awards, the test scores played a big role. Um, they, don't, they don't anymore. I mean, they certainly, for students who want to submit it, certainly we consider it. It is part of the role for merit for them. But then students who don't submit, who are optional, we really put them kind of in a different, uh, kind of a different matrix. We're evaluating them kind of on a different scale. So the weight of whether they get merit or not, for example, is really more on their curriculum and their grades. And they're not really moving up and down our scale, obviously, because they don't, they don't have a test score. So when you look at the admit rates or you know, percent of our class who gets merit, it's about the same for both groups. What's up, podcast friends? I'm happy to share that we've teamed up with Dormco to make your dorm decorating a lot easier. Why Dormco? They offer quality and durability, affordability, and a wide selection for bedding to storage solutions and everything in between for your dorm room. So if you or anyone you know is looking to decorate your dorm, see the affiliate partnership link in the show notes for Dormco, your one stop for stylish, affordable, and quality dorm essentials. Please note that if you make a purchase through any of our affiliate links, the podcast gets a commission, but rest assured that we would only promote products that we believe in and feel would benefit our listeners. Thank you all and best wishes. Well, we appreciate that overview. And many of the reps that I've interviewed, they talk about the fact that, yes, their schools went test optional throughout the pandemic. And what they're doing is basically what you described. They're looking at their data over the next couple of years to see if there's really any correlation and whether or not they need to require test scores moving forward. So right. would you agree that you think that more and more schools are going to remain test optional in the future or 
What are your thoughts? No, I'd be very surprised if many people go back. Uh, right. there's, there's certainly some of the public schools at the state level are maybe starting to get some pressure from some of their state governments to, to you know, to maybe go back. But even that, I'm not, I'm not seeing much of that. Um, I, I really think most schools are going to remain. I think test optional is here to stay. I think what you might even see down the road is maybe even more and more schools just going test free. You know, right. like like we've seen right. in California, where hey, don't even submit your scores, right? Right. Uh, now, Denver, we you know we still see value in scores. If someone right. wants to submit their score, we of course will include it in our evaluation. It'll be one one thing of many. You know, the transcript always has been and always will be the main factor in our process. Sure. But if we have a test score, we're going to look at it just like we're going to read your essay and we're going to read that recommendation from your teacher. You know, we're going to look at some of the things you've been doing, but it really is one factor. It doesn't have very much weight. Well, we appreciate that. And you mentioned yeah. the essay. So what are some examples of college essays that left an impression on you? And Todd, what advice would you share with prospective students in terms of what to think about when preparing to write their essays? Yep. I'd say in some ways I would go back to what we talked about with demonstrated interest. Let it be genuine, right? Like don't, don't use demonstrated interest as a strategy, right? Do it if you're genuinely interested in university, you're going to surf their website or visit their campus. And I'd say the same thing with an essay. Be genuine, be you. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you're not writing what you think we want to hear, right? Right. What you know, what you think we want to read, and you know, when you get twenty thousand applications a year, we get a lot of different types of essays. Don't think that you have to stand out because remember, we're not comparing. We're going to read your essay only when we're reading your file. So this is your time to give voice to your application. Right? We don't need to see that you're a Pulitzer uh, you know, Prize-winning writer. Right? <laughs> I don't expect a 17- or 18-year-old to be you know, winning the Pulitzer Prize for a college essay they're writing. Right? I don't think you're going to get it published in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Maybe do that you know, when you're 30 or 40. <laughs> um, we ex- you know, certainly, we want to see that some, we believe someone can write at the college level. They're ready to do some serious Uh, you know, reading and writing when they go to college, because it will be more than they've done in high school. Uh, But we're also not looking for this piece, like I said, that's going to be published, you know, in in the Wall Street Journal. Right. Um, And also, you know, we talked about like legacies and demonstrated interest. I'd say in some ways it's true for the essay too. If you're a really strong student, you've got a strong curriculum, you've got a lot of things in place, you'd have to write a really bad essay to get denied. (laughs) Right. Like it would have to be pretty obvious. And the same thing, you know, if you have a 2.8 and you write the Pulitzer Prize winning essay, you're probably not getting it. Good for you. You're a great writer, but you really should have had better grades, you know, the last three or four years. Um, So I'd say the essay, you've got to put it in proper perspective. What we really want to do when we're reading is just learn a little bit more about you. What are you going to what are you going to be like as a roommate? What are you going to be like as a classmate? How will you contribute to our campus? Who, what do you do for fun, right? What do, you, what do you do on a Saturday night? Or what do you do at six in the morning before you go to school? Um, we're really just trying to get a little insight. So don't have a coach write it. Don't hire a professional writer. Don't use chat GPT, <laughs> right? Like you don't have to be this brilliant writer. By the way, we also have like all these other students who aren't going to be journalism majors or not, you know, creative writing majors. 
We get it. Not everyone's gifted at writing. That's why just take your time. So kind of your other question, prep. Don't write it the night before. Right. Right. Like, right. Think about, you know, both my kids are, uh, I have a senior in high school now and, and I have a first year in college. So they both have recently gone through this. But I had both of my kids. I didn't, you know, force them to do this. But I said, look, over the summer, start working on your essays. Right. Start figuring out what topics you want to start doing some drafts. And, and I didn't even look at them. In fact, my son submitted his application before I'd even seen it. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I guess, I guess you, you, you had it covered. So um, my daughter, I did read hers, right? I thought she asked me just to look at it. I didn't rewrite it. I didn't add, but you know, I think it's okay. Ask a parent to read it, not to rewrite it necessarily to give you some feedback so you can go rewrite it or maybe add something or take something away that, or, you know, my daughter, I had her friends. Right. She would have five of her friends, you know, down the neighborhood. Hey, read my essay for me. She would read theirs. That's, I think, again, genuine, honest, and it's effort, too. You're putting in the time and the effort that it deserves. Well, we appreciate that, of course. And I love how your daughter asked you to review it and your son did not, I think is what you said. Now, let's be very honest. My son's probably the one uh, who should have had a parent read his essay. My daughter's a great writer, right? She didn't need any, but you know, I think daughters are a little more conscientious and a little more focused. So. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And digging deeper in the overall application, obviously a student's activity sheet is another piece of their application. What are the kinds of things you are looking for beyond the work they did in the classroom? Yeah, and I'm going to go back to the same advice I give in the essay, be you. Right. And what I mean by that is, again, we're not looking for this prescribed list of activities. Oh, if you've done these four things, you're in. And you're going to get you know 10,000 more in merit. It doesn't work that way, right? We really don't have a preference on what students do. We want them to do what they enjoy doing, You know what, where, where they want to learn, where they want to spend their time, where they have fun and, and, and enjoyment. Um, it could be sports. It could be theater. It could be, you know, music. Um, you, you name it. There's so many. It could be just a job, right? I shouldn't say just a job. I mean, working is right. also important and, and earning right. money. And you're learning a lot of things working with people and doing that job, too. Um, so my point is, we don't have this rubric and, hey, we're checking off. Oh, they did all these six things. This is exactly what we're looking for. We're truthfully not looking for anything. We're looking for someone who's done something outside of the classroom. They've maybe found ways to contribute to their school, contribute to their community. The other thing we're really looking for, and again, we're not trying to um, judge or figure out what people are doing or try to you know funnel that into, um, we're just trying to see, are we going to have a really diverse group of students who have done 150 different things? And that's a pretty cool group to put together <laughs> as a class. That, by the way, if they've done things at their high school, chances are they will do things at our campus. That they, too, will join clubs and organizations. They'll volunteer. Um, you know, they're dedicated to the public good. They care about sustainability or, you know, whatever it might be for them. Um, we need students to fill all those, those things up. So we truthfully, we don't want students that all do the same things, right? We truly <laughs> want the 100 things because we have at least 100 different things for them to do once they get here. And we want more than one or two people doing those hundred things. Well, that's great insight and great advice. You're looking for a diverse class to accept. And so you heard it here, students. You don't have to do the same five things that your friends are doing, but do something that certainly appeals to you that's really close to your heart. So, Todd, again, that's great advice. 
I was very curious, Todd, once a student commits to a college, how important is it for them to withdraw from other colleges where they may no. have been accepted? And can you give us some insight into how difficult the process becomes for you in terms of determining how many students, again, to accept or not mm. from your own wait list when you don't have a final number on how many accepted students are actually attending? Mm-hmm. Well, your first question, it is so appreciated when students let us know they want to withdraw. Right. And it's not just at the end of the year. So, for example, you know, we know early decision has really grown at a lot of universities. And a student might be applying early action with us, but early decision somewhere else. Sometimes early decision, those schools might notify before we've even gotten into committee for early action, for example. But if a student gets in an early decision, instead of maybe letting us know before, you know, before May 1, it really helps when you just simply just email our office, say, look, I'm withdrawing. I just got into early decision at, you know, X, Y, Z. Right. And we're able to withdraw their app before we go into committee to make our decisions. And that just freed up a spot for someone else. Right. So it's a really courteous thing to do for your fellow uh, classmates and fellow seniors across the entire country. You know, not just students at your high school that if you're withdrawing, you're opening up a spot for anyone in the country who's applied to Denver. And then same thing kind of later in the year, once we get into waitlist season, if people who are in our admit pool let us know, hey, it might, it might be April 1, let's say. And, and you know, the decision deadline's not until May 1, but they, they've already deposited and made a decision in another school. If they let us know that, that might free up a spot before May 1 for someone on my wait list that, hey, one of my admitted students just withdrew. I can maybe take now a student from my wait list and offer them that spot. I wish far more students would do it. Well, that's great insight. Thank you so much for sharing that. So students, remember, if you apply to 10, 12, whatever the number is, and you're accepted to your dream school, whatever that school may be, very important to withdraw from all of your other acceptances because there might be someone on a wait list who's looking at that school, again, whatever that school is, as their dream school. So it's really just to have integrity in the whole process. It's very important once you're accepted, once you commit, withdraw from all of your other acceptances. So Todd, I really appreciate that insight. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. And I love how you said, you know, it's integrity, it's responsibility. The other thing, the good news for the students when you do that, I'm going to stop sending you 10 emails a week and I'll stop <laughs> filling up your, your uh, mailbox with postcards and brochures. So in some ways you're helping yourself. <laughs> well, that's that's another point I didn't consider, but thank you so much for sharing that as well, Todd. Yeah. And I was also curious, the University of Denver, can you explain what you offer to students that may have had an IEP in high school in terms of helping to ensure that they continue to be successful once they're on your campus? Yeah, great, great question. First of all, universities and colleges all over the country um, and, and they're called different things. They're usually it's like disability services or um, all of those universities. If you have a documented uh, learning disability difference, they're going to be able, depending on what your accommodations are, that's the office you're going to work with to do like extended time on your tests or maybe get audio books or a note taker in class. Those are things that anyone can qualify for. And those are free. And that's protected by federal law. Um, what a school like University of Denver, though, also offers on top of that, we have a program called the Learning Effectiveness Program, it's, and we call it LEP. Mm-hmm. That's the acronym. <laughs> um, 
that's also a, it's a it's a fee. So students who pay a, an extra fee every quarter, I think for the year it's maybe four thousand dollars somewhere in that. But essentially, what you're getting with that, you still get all your your service, your accommodations. So you would still get, let's say, extended time or a note taker if you've qualified for that. But what you're paying for with LEP is you're getting a coach, kind of a personal academic coach who's going to meet with you once a week, and they're going to work with you on executive functioning. Uh, so to keep you organized. Make sure you're meeting deadlines. What tests do you have next week? What papers do you have due in three weeks? They're going to help you like, start to have a calendar, start to figure out that, hey, you're not going to start working on that paper the night before. <laughs> Probably if it's a six-page paper, you might want to work on that even a month or so before. Mm-hmm. And get, you know, When do you go to the library to do research? When do you start writing your first draft? And they're there to also help and, and look over some of your work. And they also have tutors that are part of that program in any subject. So whether it's science or you know writing, you name it, they have tutors um, that you can work with. You get so many hours with those tutors every week. And there's only a handful of schools that really have exceptional programs like I'm describing. And we, we are one of those. And we've had this for you know over 40 years. We're kind of known for it. Wow. Well, that's terrific. And Todd, I always include the Office of Undergraduate Admissions in the show notes. If there are any other links that you want to provide the students and the parents, mm-hmm. certainly just email them to me. And of course, I'll make them available in the show notes to everyone. So Todd, thank you again for an amazing conversation. Unfortunately, this leads us to our last question, which is what are your top three pieces of advice you would provide students and their parents who are getting ready for the college admissions process? John, first of all, you are an excellent interviewer and hopefully families have found uh, uh, thank you. great value in this and I've enjoyed spending the time with you. But I could go another hour giving people advice on this process, <laughs> but I'll probably just share a few things. One, enjoy this process. You only get to go to high school one time. You're only going to be a senior once and you're only going to go through this college admission process once. Don't stress out. And hopefully listening to a podcast like this, you're going to understand um, it's going to be okay. Like you can navigate it. There's a lot of schools for you. Don't worry about sometimes what you see in the media that you're not going to get into all these places. There's so many schools. Our national admit rate is over 50%. You know, when you put all colleges and universities together, right? 80% of universities admit more than half of their applicants. So don't right. always believe, I guess, you know, everything you're seeing in the, in the media that it's going to be okay. You're going to find your home. But I think the main advice I would give It's a three-step process, and the students are in control of two of those three. And for the parents who are business people, um, most of us as adults, if we had a business deal and we controlled two-thirds of the deal, tell us where to sign up for that, right? (laughs) So, And and let me walk you through. So the first step is students get to decide where to apply. You know, you decide if you're applying to three schools, five schools, ten, and you get to decide which ones. And truthfully, you get to decide your own stress level. Are you going to apply to schools that have admit rates over 50%, which is totally fine. Those are great schools. Or are you going to apply to five or six or more schools that all have admit rates in single digits? That could be a really stressful, anxious process. (laughs) Why do that to yourself? So, I mean, it's great to maybe have a couple, but I'd also have some where you think you're, you're a pretty strong match. So the students get to decide. The second part does get kicked to people like me, right? that in the admission process, the colleges decide who we're going to admit. But even that second process, the students still have a lot of control. You've decided which classes you're going to take. 
you've decided how much effort you're going to put into your to your homework and studying for exams and really the grades you're earning. You own your classes and your grades. Um, so in some ways, even that part, while we control it, you have control over a lot of the inputs that we're looking at. And then third, that ball, once we make our decisions, the ball kicks back to the students. They get to decide where they're going to enroll, not the colleges, not their parents, right? They own that decision. And by the way, I think parents should be involved. This is a big life decision. Parents and family members know you better than others. Get their advice. It's fine to ask them their advice and get their, but still make your own decision. It's fine. To, it's just like when reading a file and we have all these different factors. We pay attention to all the factors. And I think students should do that too. But at the end of the day, it's really their decision. And they're the ones not just going to school there. They're going to be living in that city or town or state for four years. So you better make sure there's a lot of things in place there for you, not just win the press conference. In other words, hey, you're going to press all your friends at graduation or at the parties and tell them where you're going. There needs to be something really compelling about where you're going. Besides, it's just a really exciting place to tell people you're going and that it's impressive. It better have a lot of impressive things seven days a week, 24 hours a day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Todd. Those are tremendous pieces of advice and great insight, Todd. This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I'm so happy, as I know that it's going to help so many students and their parents as they navigate through the college admissions process. So I want to thank you, and I hope to have you again, Todd. Thank you, John, and any of your families. If you visit campus, look me up, say hello. I might even take you to lunch. (laughs) Terrific. Well, if I'm ever in the area, I'm coming to campus and I'm taking you up on that offer. Thanks again, Todd. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please don't forget to tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am your host, John Durante, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Cap. What's up, podcast friends? I'm happy to announce that we've teamed up with some fantastic affiliate partners to further enhance your overall college journey. So do you or someone you know need stylish dorm decor, trendy college apparel, or top-notch test prep? Whether it's creating a cozy home away from home, flaunting the latest in college apparel, or securing top-notch test prep help, we've got you covered. Check out our affiliate links in the show notes within each of these categories, which we believe will help you, our listeners. Please note that if you make a purchase through any of our affiliate links, the podcast does get a small commission, but rest assured that we would only promote products that we believe in and feel would benefit you, our listeners. So check out the links in the show notes and share with anyone you think may benefit. Thank you all and best wishes.